As we jump into today's topic and really what we're going to wrestle with, we're going to be in three different scriptures. And uh, so the first scripture we're actually going to be in is in 1 John 1. Um, We're going to look at really one verse, but we're going to read seven verses. And also we're going to be in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5. We're going to do a flyby of that. That's important. We're going to kind of catch some nuggets along the way. And then ultimately at the end, we're going to land in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 18 through 22. And then all the way at the end of this talk, there's going to be eight things that I, I want us to look at the, at the word fellowship in a different and unique way. So we're going to look at eight different ways that we can have fellowship and what fellowship does for us. And, and it has nothing to do with fried chicken or potlucks, just in case you wondered. As many people think, will the fellowship be like, oh, I like chicken as much as the next person or potlucks. It has really nothing to do with those. That's not where I'm going with this. But I want to start with this story. Several years ago for my birthday, um, Marla, knowing that I loved the Miami Dolphins, um, we're a suffering few. They haven't won in long, 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 long time. But knowing that I love the Dolphins, um, she paid for her and I to go to the Miami Dolphin football game in Miami. And I believe this is when we lived in Jacksonville. Is that right? I think. Was it in my, where was it? It's when we lived in Melbourne. All right. So I said it wrong in the 915. Don't tell him. So it's when we lived in Melbourne. And then we drove down and went to this game. It was amazing. And I thought, you know what? They're playing the Buffalo Bills. So if there's anything that guarantees a win, it's playing the Bills. And then also home field advantage. So we got there um, and got there early. Actually got into, into Miami early. Um, all of that. And it was great. We actually got there really early and we had, I think, a steak and shake breakfast, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Wow. What memory. Um, it was that memorable, y'all. Not really. But so we have this, this breakfast, only time we've ever had breakfast there, actually, and then went into the game and we were, we were like way up high, but it was great because it's one of those types of stadiums where if you're up high, it's such a steep angle that you feel like if you fall from there, you're actually going to fall onto the field. So it's like that, at least the way it feels. And we're around a bunch of rowdy people. It was great. So I thought, you know what? We're playing the Bills. We're going to win. And I thought, it's my first game, so at least they're going to try extra hard. I mean, it's my first game I've actually gone to live to see the Dolphins. I thought, if that isn't going to do it, that isn't going to guarantee a win. I don't know what is. But then I thought, well, you know what? The clincher is we have home field advantage. And in sports, if you have the home field advantage, right, that's like a really big deal. So I thought, man, if there's anything that guarantees a win, it's these three things, and especially home field advantage. Problem is, they lost. And it wasn't even really that competitive after halftime. So we go there, and we're just having the, the we're in this environment, and we thought, man, if they're for sure going to win, but then they ended up losing. And all of that was great, except they lost, is what I thought we were supposed to win. I think a lot of us as Christians, we feel like in this country that we should have home field advantage. That I think that, that in our country, we feel like we, we should have and we do have home field advantage. And yet part of that, I think, becomes problematic because if you tie, listen to me closely, if you tie your faith, God, and the American flag so tightly together then every time that something goes on politically that you don't agree with, you're going to feel like you're losing. Because ultimately, if you wrap those three things in together, it's all on your, your contentedness, your joy, your happiness is all going to be on condition as if everybody's doing what you want them 
to do. And I understand why that even in America today that we, we think that Christians have home field advantage. I want to give you two quotes. First one is by George Washington, a name that you are certainly familiar with. And this is what he says. And let's, let's read this closely. But I think once we look at really, really close, we're going to see maybe what we impose upon it. Here we go. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, right? Okay, that's good. Religion and morality are indispensable supports. Reason and experience forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. So oftentimes we look at this quote and we think, yes, we're a Christian nation. But notice not one time does George Washington say the word Christian. Instead, what Christians impose upon this quote is this. We say of all the dispositions and habits would lead to political prosperity, Christianity and morality are are indispensable supports. That's just not what he says. And then we replace the thing at the end where we expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of Christian principle. That's just not what it says. So I understand that we think in, in America, especially Christians, we think we have the home field advantage. Like this is the home team, home field advantage. Of course, Christians should always be winning. But yet our culture now has this slide where we feel like we're not winning. And I think maybe this other, this next quote will help us also to understand maybe why we're not winning and what we should do about it. This one comes from Dwight D. Eisenhower. He says this, our form of government has no sense unless it's founded in a deeply felt religious faith. Notice it doesn't say a deeply felt Christian faith. Notice it doesn't say that. And maybe you look at this and you're like, amen. You're like, yes, we're a Christian nation. Except what he says to finish his quote out, he says, our form of government has no sense unless it's founded upon the deeply felt religious faith. And what does he say? And I don't care what it is. What he's saying and what George Washington is saying is something that we need to really listen to. Political, the, uh, the political landscape needs Christianity, but Christianity doesn't need it. The political and, and the government, it needs Christianity. It does. It does, but Christianity doesn't need it. Christianity was birthed in an environment that was incredibly hostile to it. Christianity was birthed in an environment of of Roman rule and this Greek civilization, just the merging of all sorts of different cultures and out of that culture birthed a brand new way of living, a brand new way of, of experiencing life, a brand new way of having community and having fellowship. And if you think back through history, Does the Roman Empire exist anymore? Somebody say no. And the Greek, thank you, there was one of you who agreed with me. It doesn't exist anymore. Because the thing that broke the Roman Empire's back is Christianity. They didn't know what to do. They were scratching their head because there was these people radically identified by being with this Jesus, of which it was a mystery to them. But they were were radically changed by it. And they had such hospitality around it. They had such community around this this Jesus, this mystery to them. And in that, even even in the the writings after the New Testament writings, directly after the, the century after, there was these writings about it where they were just literally scratching their head and they just didn't understand how it was that these Christians could be the way that they are in the face of such opposition and still love their neighbor. And yet it was their hospitality that that the watching world saw. And it was their hospitality 
that challenged them. It wasn't their political affiliation. They didn't get bogged down in the politics of what was going on in Roman rule. Sure, Paul spoke, he spoke about it and he spoke against it in the New Testament, but it was about the gospel of Jesus. In case some of you are nervous right now, is this a big a political talk? It's not. You can breathe a sigh of relief. And yet we look at what Washington said, and then we look at now what Eisenhower said, and this is like probably a watershed moment for some of you, and the, I don't care what it is, and then fast forward to even a, a couple of years, not that long after this, and then it was the first Catholic president who was an outright Catholic president was John F. Kennedy, and we thought, well, man, he's going to be our savior. He's going to be the savior of the country. How did that work out, Right? And then you fast forward a little bit longer. Now it's going to be treading on some of our soil. And then you fast forward a couple years, a couple years down the road, and now you have your first born-again evangelical professing Christian who is the president, and it's Jimmy Carter. And how did that work out? And then you press on a little bit farther, and now you have a president, President Obama, who goes and he campaigns on hope and change. Both of those are great things. And yet how did those eight years work out? And then you progress on to the current president who says, let's make America great again. And you're like, well, what form of America is he trying to bring us back to? What form of, of America is he bringing us back to? I tell you all that, not so, not so we divide the room politically. What I want you to say is where you, where you put your allegiances politically is not near as important than where you put your faith. Than where you put your faith because where we are politically, sure, it's important. I want you to vote. I vote. But it's not as important because none of those people are the savior of the world. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And he came and he died on, on, the, on a hill called Calvary. And it's a place you can visit today in a literal reality. And he literally rose from the dead. And no one else has been able to do that in, in such a way outside of when Jesus resurrected someone himself. But he rose again, proving that he was God, proving that he was the pathway back to God the Father so that we can be reconciled with God. But for us, what we've wrestled with in this whole series is, does my life verify that I'm one of God's own? And I, I want you to know that in this, does my life verify that I'm one of God's own? And now we're going to be looking at it through the lens of, of fellowship and biblically what fellowship is. And again, it's not potlucks and fried chicken. Don't get caught up in that trap. I want to tell you a story first as we dig into what we're going to see next is, is something about faith that's very particular and you need to hear it. There's this place that I love to hike. It's actually probably my favorite hike uh, in the state of Georgia. I've been on the Appalachian Trail many times, but it's not there. It's actually the Pine Mountain Trail. And there's this, this one particular section that's a five-mile hike, and you, you pull into the parking lot at Molly Hugger Hill. Is that what it's called? And if you park at Molly Hugger Hill, and that's the real name, you can Google it. You park there, right? They have such creative names. You park there. If you were to go, I believe it's, it would be considered east on this trail. If you go up just a little bit, you're going to find this place that's called Whiskey Still Campsite. There's three camping pads there. It's great. I've camped there too. And then you progress on past that, and it's a place that's near and dear to my heart that I call the homestead. And then if you go a little bit past that, again, that's what I call it. And then you you go a little bit further, there's this place that I call Cambodia. And all of this is just different 
different. I know, I know, it's weird, right? Some of it they named and some of it I named. It's weird, but I'm going somewhere with this. Like I, I and so Molly Hugger Hill, and then it's a five mile hike, and I pass through all of this. And if you go through Cambodia, and the reason why I call it Cambodia is because there's a bamboo that's taller than like everyone in the room times two. It's like it's just incredibly tall, like you'd see in the jungles of. Cambodia, thank you, you're with me. So you hike on, on this trail and then eventually, if you progress on a little bit farther, the soil gets a little bit more rocky and then you get to a place where you can look to your left and you can see Dordal Knob. And that was the place that President Roosevelt would go and have picnics and you can actually go stand on his grill. Like you can do that, I've done it many times. It's kind of neat. So you can progress on past Dordal Knob and then you can ultimately land at Brown Dog Campsite. And that's where Austin and I, um, camped on this one particular time. We made this hike as we've made before, and it's five miles, all of those stops along the way. In this particular time, it was winter. It was really cold, and everything was great. We went up there. We were the only, play, only people camping there, and although the soil wasn't very comfortable, it was very rocky. It didn't matter. Like, you could move rocks, but somehow there was a rock underneath the other rock, so it's like you give up. You just give up on that, and you just try and contort your body around the rock. But we put up our tent, a two-person tent, and now it's, now it's nighttime. And as we're in this two-person tent, Austin puts down a sleeping bag and I put down my sleeping bag. I knew that the weather was forecasted to dip below 20 degrees. And I knew I was also in trouble because I knew that I had a 50-degree rated sleeping bag that night. So I knew that I, I was fully committed to this experience, irregardless how cold it was going to be. And I also knew that I was ill-equipped for it. So in, in the midst of me having the sleeping bag, I knew that it was impossible for us to, to hike. I wasn't going to hike at night to hike back the five miles from Brown Dog Campsite to Molly Hugger Hill and to get into the vehicle and leave. I knew that wasn't an option, so I knew we had to hunker down. That, that whole night, I was, I was on the verge of hypothermia. My feet were freezing. It didn't matter what socks I had on, socks on, socks off. It really didn't matter. My sleeping bag just wasn't fitted. It was so weird that, that I was, even in the midst of that, I was trying to do crunches. I saw on like Discovery Channel one time, this is the way you heat up your core to, make, to help you, yourself survive. Didn't work in case you wondered. Um, but I lay there. I was miserable all night long and I woke up. Um, I woke up the next morning and my Nalgene bottle was actually frozen. I tell you all that. And I tell you all that, that story for this point. I intentionally buried you with facts. And if I were to ask you about some of those facts, you'd be able to come up with probably some of those, those nifty names. And you'd probably be able to tell me, yeah, it was a five-mile hike. And you'd probably be able to recall President Roosevelt. And you'd probably be able to recall, oh, you can go stand on his grill. You see, you can, you can have all those facts, but you didn't have my experience. You can have all the facts of the gospel. You can have all the facts of the Bible. You can come sit in this room or any other room like it. You can sing the Jesus songs. You can sing in time or out of time. You can do whatever you're going to do. You can have all those facts. But just because you have the facts doesn't mean that you have the salvation that's offered through Jesus. You see, the Pharisees, they had all the facts. They knew the Bible better than all of us. The Sadducees, they had the facts. They had a little different way of looking at the scriptures. They too had some facts. There was no salvation in their knowledge. Even the scribes, the people who were responsible for transcribing the word of God, they knew it. I mean, they knew it inside and out and they knew it in such a way that we will probably never know it. But you know what? All the facts wasn't enough for them to have salvation. They had facts, but it requires faith. Let me give you my definition of faith. Faith is the attitude and belief that a person gives up all self-effort 
That's a very important hyphenated word. To gain salvation, but trust solely in the cross of Christ for salvation and the lordship of Christ for direction. See, faith is the attitude and belief that a person gives up all self-effort to gain salvation. The person, they just get to the, they get to the end of themselves and they say, you know what? It's not a matter of, of how much money I can give to church to, to alleviate the guilt and, the, and the, the debt is required of my sin. It's not a matter of, well, I can, I can come to church regularly and I can, I can just have the self-effort that's, that that's going to make God say, you know what? He's going to open up those gates and say, oh, come on in. You are so worth it. See, it takes faith. And that true faith is trusting in the finished work of the cross that Jesus, when he died, finishing the work as an offer for our salvation, but also it's the lordship of Christ for our direction. You see, oftentimes we separate these two ideas of salvation without direction. We want the salvation because in it you say, well, I get the salvation and then I get to pursue the rest of my desires and get the direction from my life that I want after this. But true salvation, true born again salvation is this. It's in a cross of Christ for salvation, but also the lordship of Christ for direction. Understanding that there's no self-effort that you can do. That you have to get to the end of yourself. In this series, we've talked about self a lot. And, I, and I, some things, I said this to the 915, I'll say it to you. I understand when it comes to the issues of self, many people ru- just wrestle with, with the issue of self. And I've also struggled with this a bit. Week by week, I just, I just almost expected that, that the number of people who would be here week per week would drop off. Because I know that when it comes to the issue of self, it's hard to wrestle with. And I know some of you are afraid of really looking at yourself. And I get it. I've got a list of reasons why, and this is an incomplete list, but I think this is the reason why some people avoid the issues of self. First one on my list is they're just afraid of what they're going to find. Like if I really, if I really get down to, to the heart of me, that's, I may get into some uncomfortable things and, and maybe you're really digging into the heart of you. Maybe you're going to see some things you just don't like. Maybe also you just have to admit a problem, that you have a problem. And maybe this is a problem that if you admit to this problem, you're also admitting to what other people have said about you to you. So now if you you admit there's a problem, you have to also admit that somebody else was right. Maybe you have a problem with just being quiet. So you fill your life with busyness and I've got to be at work and I've got this job and I've got this I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to feed the kids and I've got to clean the house and I've got to go here and I've got to go have this trip and I've got to go do this. And maybe what you're doing is you're just showing yourself and showing the Lord you have a problem with being quiet. Just a problem with being quiet. Because maybe the problem with being quiet is then you having to deal with the real issue with you. Maybe for you, you have an inflated self-esteem to where nobody can tell you anything. Pride and ego is driving it. It's driving it and driving it and driving it. And you have inflated self-esteem. And then maybe for this, maybe just following the rules is easier. Maybe you would just love for me to give you, just could you just give me five rules for my life so I don't have to think anymore? Right? Some of you have been in church environments like that. There were all rules. And some of you have been into it real heavy. And you know that those rules just aren't, they really aren't the gospel at all, are they? 
Some people have been set free from that. You don't want me to just give you five rules. You really don't. But I understand that wrestling with the issues of self is not easy. But you have to wrestle with the issues of self so the gospel can change you from the inside out. And so you ultimately can do the thing that God wants you to do. John Calvin said this in a, in a popular quote. He said, without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. So again, talking about the issue of self, why we have to delve into it. And I believe what he's saying is right. Without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. And without, without the knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self, which means if you peer in and you see that God is holy and you will see that he is infinite and you'll see that he's all powerful, you will see actually how small you really are and how much you really need him. Because when you look at God's holiness and God's perfection and God's perfect standard for living, you and I will clearly see that we don't measure up and we need a savior. We need a savior. We also need one another. Our passage, 1 John 1, is going to show us some things that true faith in Christ, it will draw believers together. True faith in Christ will draw believers together. Verse 1, 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He's talking about Jesus. We proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard, that you may also have fellowship with us. He, this is a repetitive idea. He mentions this type of fellowship four times in this passage. Fellowship with us and our fellowship, there's another reference, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. There it is again, the fourth time. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we walk in the light, and what we said last week is this word walk is not literally talking about walking. This is talking about how you live, the habits you have, your lifestyle. If we, if we walk in the light, if you have a lifestyle that is, that is one that the Bible calls right, not that your flesh calls right, not that even that the, the political landscape calls right, not even that the, that the morality that's in the country necessarily calls right, but if you have one that the Bible says is right, then you're walking in the light. And if you're walking in the light, that means you have a lifestyle, you have habits, you have markers within your life that will verify what you truly believe. As he is in the light, as Jesus is in the light. He is the light of life, amen? We have fellowship with one another. So in this, let's think of fellowship is, is triangular. We have fellowship with God, the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And then also all of it, it's, it's with us and with other people. All of that fellowship is triangular. And we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us of all sin. You see, fellowship, fellowship disappears when we walk in the darkness. 
Fellowship with God disappears when you walk in the darkness with God or with other people. And when, from my past, from, from my heart, your pastor, from my heart to yours, I want to tell you something. Many times people wrestle with leaving church or they hop back and forth from one church to the next. And what they really wrestle with is the truth of God's word, that they're avoiding a truth or they're avoiding a person who bears the truth. So in your being right now, you're, you may think, you know what, I just, we need to bounce. We need, we need something new. I need to give something for my kids and I'm just doing this. I just want you to know you're most likely avoiding a truth or avoiding a person who's going to bear the truth. And you need the truth about you. You do. You need the truth about you. You need encouragement also, but you need the truth about you. We need to speak the truth in love to one another. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That should be the goal. Fellowship has, I don't, I, there's a bunch of scriptures in the New Testament that makes reference to this, but fellowship can be thought of in three different ways. And you see this is rendered out in the New Testament in three different ways. Fellowship is rendered out in community. That's the reason why we have community groups. That's the reason why we call it community groups. So uh, fellowship is community. It's, it's a community of faith. It's the family of God. But it's the family of God, the community of faith, rallying around the second word that fellowship also connects to. And this, that word is participation. Meaning we are participating together to forward the gospel message. That's what we're to do. God is glorified when we share his message to the lost world. We do that in, in the realm of fellowship. First as a community of faith, as the family of God. Also in, in participation. It's hard for me to say. I'm struggling to say it but also in participation, that all of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, there should be markers also in your life. This isn't even a sermon in this series, but there should be markers in your life where you're actively pursuing the gospel and sharing it to other people. And then the last one, so community, participation in the gospel. The last one is generosity, generosity. Your life should be, your life should be just marked with generosity, not stinginess, not greed, not ungodliness, but generosity. Because as people who have received so much from God, you see, when, when you've received salvation from God and he's also, that Jesus is not, he's, he is your, your method of salvation, but also he is the, he's the method of direction. What you see is that the value of stuff is really, really small compared to the value of your walk with God. The value of stuff is really, really small compared to the value of a walk with God. So fellowship is marked by community participation and generosity. You see, community is not a chore to be completed. It's a necessity for Christ's likeness. You see, I rejoice in this. I rejoice in the fact that community is not a chore to be completed. If, if you think, oh, community groups start in the fall and everybody else is going to be in a community group and now I'm guilty to be in a community group, then you already have the wrong approach. You're treating it as if it's a chore. And all of that, if you treat it as if it's a chore, you're building the kingdom of me. Me. You're not building the kingdom of God. You're building the kingdom of me. Instead, you should see it as a necessity for Christ-likeness. Community, fellowship, Participation in the gospel and generosity is a necessity for Christ-likeness. Because after all, we, we were meant to thrive in an environment where we have home field disadvantage. There, so 
when Jeffrey Topping was here, our missionary to Australia, um, I love what Jeffrey's doing and hearing reports of what he's doing. And it's like you just look at his face and you see he just has the joy of the Lord. And, and many people have said that. And it's just like, man, he is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Well, it wasn't necessarily a conversation we had on, on stage when he was here, but it was a conversation that we had at some other time. But I was talking with Jeffrey about uh, just the condition of Christianity in Australia. And he said, he said, it's really interesting because years ago, Australia was very, they viewed Christianity very favorably to where you could just, you could preach and even share the gospel very openly. And he says, but yet now it's become very secular. But in that, he says, what it's done is it's really refined the church. And now because of this opposition, they, my words, not his, because of this opposition, because now they see that they're working at a home field disadvantage. Again, my words says now, because that's the reality. Now the churches have to rely upon one another. Now they have to rely upon one another because now they've been, their comfort has been disrupted. And now they realize that now each little ecclesia, each little fellowship has to lean into other fellowships. And they've started to view things, not just building their own little kingdoms, but instead expanding the kingdom of God on foreign soil. You see, that's what an ambassador does though, isn't it? An ambassador lives as a citizen of another land on foreign soil. That's the reason why in the gospel we're referred to as ambassadors for Christ. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's what it says in 2 Corinthians. That's what we've been given. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're living on, on foreign soil. We have always been people who've lived at home field disadvantage. And I wonder if, if the best days for the church aren't in front of us, maybe when even in our day, in our culture, as it becomes more secular, that the real church, the real church would be better defined and will actually rely upon one another instead of just building little bitty kingdoms within the kingdom of God. After all, I draw this from verse three. After all, the church, if we, we've been reconciled with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. This is what it says about you, Christians. And every Christian today, every Christian um, in, in a thousand years, if we're still here, and, and every Christian for the last 2,000 years, this is true of us. This marks us. And I love, the, I love the word compels that it says right here at the beginning of this passage. For Christ's love compels compels, like draws us because we are convinced that once died, that one died for all and therefore all died. What Paul is saying is that one died for all, that Jesus died for all. And yet he says, and all have died. They've, what he's saying in that is they've died to their selfishness. They're, they've died to their self-defensive nature. They've, they've died to their, their radical individualism. They've died to their own self-effort to earn salvation. And he says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is the very thing that radically defines the family of God. That God takes us as outsiders and he makes us insiders so us as insiders can go out to the outsiders and make them insiders. That's what he's doing to reconcile the world to himself. But he has given us the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors for Christ, as the community of faith and fellowship should, should be the basis of 
our lives. So I wonder some things. I wonder of when people outside of the faith, I wonder when they hear the, the title Christian, I wonder what they think of. I wonder when, when people outside of the faith, they hear the title Christian, I wonder what it is that they think of. And I wonder also of this, I'll share it with you in just a second, but the, the newly installed president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he said something that's so interesting. And he said something that, that I believe is his effort within his denomination, of which we're not a part of, but I believe within his denomination, he's pointing to something of all of American Christianity right now. And I think what he's pointing to is that we need to decouple God, our faith, and the flag. This is what he says. There are certain things on the Republican platform that Republicans have championed that evangelical Christians have identified with. However, we need to decouple the identity of the church from, political, from particular political platforms about which there can be disagreement. I wonder if he isn't just pointing to something he's going to speak into. I don't know. I've never talked to the man. I would, I would rally at the opportunity, but I wonder if he's pointing to what he sees as a future reality to where that the church of Jesus Christ, through, even through his denomination, but I think there's something there for us, that there's something would rev up in us in a more pure form of the gospel that's, that's even less American, and I'm pro-America, but I'm even, pro, I'm even more so pro-Jesus, okay? I just want you to know that. We're not people of a flag, we're people of the cross if you're in Christ. That, that has to be what we lead with. But I wonder if he isn't pointing out a problem that we even need to pay attention to. That maybe for you, that you have coupled God, your faith, and your flag all together. So that when people think the word Christian, or they even think your name, that they think of your political persuasion instead of Christ-likeness. So a question to make this personal is this. What are you known for? Your patriotism? or your godliness or holiness? What are you known for? What are you known for? When you have private conversations with friends, what are you known for? Your patriotism? Where you align politically? Or is it your holiness, your pursuit of God? See, church, don't take the bait. Satan wants us to be all about the patriotism side of it. He really does. He wants us to be all about that because if we're all about that, we won't be all about Jesus. So what are you known for? Your patriotism or your godliness or your holiness? See, the truth is this. As you flip to uh, the right in your Bible, to Revelation 21, verse one through five. You see, Christians, we are people of and from the future. We are people who, who speak of hope because we know that there is a sure hope, Amen. We speak of, of the hope of, that comes with the walk with Jesus because at the end of the Bible, when, when God clearly lines out what's going to happen to humanity, we know if you're a born-again follower of Jesus, you know where you're going to stand. So when John writes this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to just listen to what he says, and it's so hopeful. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw a whole, the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. and There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. If you're a Christian, you are a person about and from the future. We don't have to get all tied down into current worldly things. We don't have to have our patriotism so closely tied to our faith. That was never meant to be the way of Jesus. That's not the, the way of Jesus was never supposed to be so closely connected to that where people would automatically know where we stand politically just because we are indeed followers of Jesus. But we're not the first people to struggle with this, actually. Go to the left in your Bible, if you would, to Ephesians 2. We're going to see something that I believe is so interesting and something that really speaks into where we are. There's this statue that sits outside off the coast of New York. A statue I've seen. Um, I was too cheap to actually take the ferry that goes right to it. So I actually got the advice of somebody who, um, I think it was somebody who was running the, the subway in New York City. But it gave me the advice. He says, you know what? You're not going to have the best view that you would if you took the Liberty Island Ferry but instead just take the Staten Island Ferry and you still get a good view of it and you actually get a good uh, a view of the landscape of New York City. And I was there for work and we had a day away and um, we stayed actually on Long Island and we took a train right into Grand Central Station. And I got to tell you all, I'm like a small town guy and we were in Grand Central Station. And although I was with a guy who was six, seven, I think, um, and there were three of us, I, I, I felt really small and I felt really outnumbered and I, we really didn't have a clue. So we got some advice of people. We found out the New Yorkers are really nice, um, certainly nice to us. And they gave us some direction of what we were supposed to do. And we got this advice to take the Staten Island Ferry. Eventually we got on the Staten Island Ferry and I remember looking out at the Statue of Liberty and it was amazing. I mean, it was just amazing there. I was actually there August of 2001. I remember looking back and all that the, the Statue of Liberty stands for. And it stands for some pretty great things. I think for maybe for the foreigner, somebody who's, who is not an American, I think looking at that, if they were to look at it coming in, they would look at it and with awe and they would say, wow, this is just a place of promise and prosperity and possibility. But I also think that now as Americans, now because people don't get on boats and come through Ellis Island anymore. Now I think that it stands for something different. And I think now, this is my opinion, I think it, what the Statue of Liberty stands for now is it stands for more of, of a closed off nature that now that we're not a, op a country that's open to other people, but it's just closed to those who think like us, who believe like us, and who are willing to live like us. So it stands for two different things. And I think in that, and again, that's my opinion, we can absolutely disagree on that. It's not Bible. 
But I think even in that, that I think that there's, there's a stubbornness and a resentment within the being of the, of the American fab, fabric and even the American faith. People are really Christians. And because our patriotism is so closely tied, we think it has to be God, flag, and faith. All is so intricately wound up that now we become so wrapped up into what that statue represents. The people in Ephesus found themselves in a very similar situation. Because in Ephesians 2, what we're going to see is, starting in verse 18 through 22, the Apostle Paul, he's pouring into what was an idol in their culture. There was this, there was this idol, it was the, the title was called Artemis, and that was the Greek term. There was also a Roman term. It was Diana, it's how, what the, the Romans called it. But Artemis was the, the Greek terminology. And in Ephesus... If you were to say the, the name Artemis, it would be as common as you hearing Georgia Bulldogs here. Like it would be that common. Everybody would know what Artemis was because Artemis was a false god and Artemis was a structure. It was one of the, one of the, seven, one of the seven wonders of the world as, as, as it's been termed. So people would go there. It was a matter of tourism. People would go there also because they believed that this false God that was erected in Ephesus, the people would go and they would rush to go see this. They believed that salvation came through Artemis. And they also believed that Artemis, some of them believed that Artemis answered prayers. So there was a, such this temptation, even with the, the Christians who were there to struggle with with their false belief, the, the past false belief of Artemis and the new belief that came with the gospel. So notice how the Apostle Paul, in one way, dismantles the false worship of Artemis, the false worship of this idol, but at the same time, he builds up this temple. The temple would be the church. The temple is still being built today. This is what he says in verse 18. Usually you have to go to the right verse to read it. Here we go. Ephesians 2.18. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So he's saying that now, if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter where you came from. And this was a cultural melting pot. The city, because of Artemis, people would come from all over the Roman Empire, to come land there because this was known as a blessed place. But notice what he says in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So in this, what he's saying, and I want us to see this clearly. In this, he's in one way dismantling this false belief of Artemis, that Artemis was, was worthy of, of, of our worship, that Artemis was worthy of offering up prayers to, that Artemis was a, a pathway to salvation. In one way, he's tearing that down. And yet in the other thing, or in the other way, he's building up a whole other idea. But he's using the cultural idol to do it. As this idol defined Ephesus, and Ephesians was a letter written to the church in Ephesus. 
And now let's again go through this and let's notice some things that that he refers to. He says members of God's family. Because and fellow citizens, because there was a cultural melting pot. They were from all over the place. And they would they would all want to come and land there in this place because it was a blessed place. Draw whatever you conclusions that you want to to the United States of America about what I'm saying right now. Built on the, the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone, as the chief cornerstone. In the scriptures, Jesus is referred to as the chief cornerstone twice. The other one is in 1 Peter, and this, was, this is the one that he's speaking into now, the chief cornerstone, because Artemis was the structure of false belief. Again, there's more. Joined together, rises to be a holy temple. Artemis rising off the ground that they, would, that they would bow down and worship. Being built together. So now this is the family of God being built together to be a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. There should be a clear marker in your life if indeed you are a born-again follower of Jesus, and that marker should be one where you see that it's necessary for you to be in fellowship with other Christians. Because when you walk in the darkness, fellowship disappears with it. But if you're walking in the light, you should intuitively know, you should spiritually be aware, you should just be drawn to, compelled, what Paul said to love people, to love the fellowship of God. Because the thing that you have in common is stronger than every other thing in all of the earth. Two defining statements, two questions, and then eight takeaways, and then we're through. You can hold me to that. Here we go. First one is this. If you're continually dissatisfied with the results of your life, you're probably building the kingdom of me. If you're continually dissatisfied with with the results of your life, you're probably building the kingdom of me. Your life revolves around you. and, And the reason why you're dissatisfied with that could be God revealing to you that you're actually trying to build the kingdom of me. And that very dissatisfaction could be God's grace to you to bring you back into fellowship with him. The second takeaway is this. If it, if you seem to be going alone, you probably are. If you seem to be going alone, you probably are. If you seem to be going alone, you probably are. Here's the two questions. If, if you find yourself in either one of these two situations that I, I just pointed out, maybe you need to wrestle down these two questions. First one is this. Is there a truth I'm avoiding? Maybe the reason why you're trying to wiggle out of fellowship and you're like, I, I, I'm just, I need to go to another church. I need to bounce. I need this. And you start using excuses. Well, I need my kids this and my kids aren't this and this and this. Maybe the reason why you bounce from church to church to church and church hop has nothing to do with those churches. It's because you've avoided a truth. Is there a truth you're avoiding? Second one, is there a person you're avoiding? Is there a person you're avoiding? And what I found to be true is this. The person that you're avoiding is probably the person who's bearing the truth. So you're you're avoiding a person because they are most likely the person who's bringing the truth. See, we won't have fellowship with God unless you're in fellowship with others. And that should be 
a clear marker in your life. So supposing to say that if you want to decouple, where we're going with this, if you want to decouple God, your faith, and the flag, if you want to decouple those, it's going to take certain practices, spiritual practices that happen in the accompaniment of fellowship for you to do so. So fellowship is to lead a born-again believer to have, uh, to be more like Jesus. I want to give you a list of eight things, and I'm going to add to these. So if you're somebody who writes these down, you're probably going to have to write fast, okay? I'm sure I'm going to be talking about these more in the future. But these are the eight things that literally help us to flesh out what true fellowship is. And nowhere on the list is fried chicken or church potluck, okay? It's not. So first one. Fellowship is to lead the born-again believer to be more like Jesus in evangelism. When Jesus sent uh, the 72 out to do the work of evangelism, he sent them out two by two. He didn't send them out individually. He sent them out two by two to look, to go city to city, village to village, people to people, looking for a person of peace that they would be able to share the gospel with. So when it comes to evangelism, this is something that we as a fellowship have to be about. So we have to be about this in this way. We have to be about it and understanding that people will come within these doors and they come in a state of pre-Christian and we want them to help to go pre-Christian. They're not born again to being the new convert. So when it comes to this environment, we give them an opportunity to grow from being not followers of Jesus to being followers of Jesus. When it comes to spiritual formation, think of it in these two words, being and becoming. Spiritual formation is being with Jesus, and there's a bunch of practices that to be with Jesus so that we can ultimately become like Jesus. That's spiritual formation. When it comes to discipleship, thinking of, think of it in these two words, teaching and training, teaching and training. So for you, if you want to disciple someone, all you have to do is teach someone what you know. And you, if you've given your life to Jesus, you have something to teach someone else. You already have something to teach someone else. You don't have to be a 20-year Christian to then cycle back to disciple someone else. We have to be about discipleship. Fellowship is rooted in evangelism, spiritual formation, discipleship, and mentoring. Think of mentoring in this way. Mentoring is helping people move toward their potential. Helping people move toward their potential. So part of mentoring is you will know each other's spiritual gifts. You will know um, the, the certain type of spiritual DNA and makeup within a person. So you're, you're working to help them reach their potential. You're mentoring them to cheer them on toward their potential. The fifth thing, spiritual guidance is this. It can be termed up with these words, together, dot, 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 with God. Spiritual guidance, which means, hey, we're in this together. You're seeking direction for your life. You want to know, you, you're seeking, should I do this? Should I go there? Should I, should I date him? Should I date her? Should I go to this place? Should I, should I go and pursue this ministry thing? What, what is it that I should do? It's saying, you know what? I'm seeking spiritual guidance. So we're together and with God's help, we're going to seek what's best for you. So together with God. Who would have thought that fellowship had so many layers? Think of the next one. Spiritual friendship is this, sharing and support. 
sharing and support. Sharing and support. So it is as a friend should be, and yet you're supporting with one another. You're sharing and supporting. Next one, spiritual counsel. Think of it in these three words. Spiritual counsel comes in many forms, but I've summed it up in three. Conversations, letters, and sermons. Uh, Whoever is up here and declaring the truth of God's word is giving you spiritual counsel every week, every week. When we have community groups that meet in the fall, we have two semesters, one in the fall going up till Christmas, and then we take about a month break, and then we come back for our second semester in in winter and then in spring. We do that, and that also is spiritual counsel. That's what you do. So I do it through sermons. Conversations are had in in community groups and also just over coffee with friends, but also think of it as in letters, meaning that it's a, something personal. Maybe for you, it's not a letter. Maybe you just write just little encouraging things on someone and you put it on their messenger feed and you just send them bits of encouragement. You're just giving them spiritual counsel. You're just, you're just trying to prod them along towards being like Jesus. And the last one, spiritual direction, can be summed up in two words, soul care, soul care. This takes time to develop, but we should have people in our life that they would ask us, say, man, how, how, how are things right now? How's your level of joy right now? Do you, feel, do you feel victorious right now or do you feel defeated right now? That's the condition of your soul. Are you experiencing the, the happiness and joy and pleasure that comes with the walk with God? Or are you feeling like you are worthless and defeated? You need the fellowship of other believers to ask you those questions. So again, this is, a list that I put together. And the great thing about this is, and then I'm done. See, I put these things out here and I give you these these little nuggets. You're smart. I don't need to create a church program to have all these worked out. You guys are smart. You can figure it out. You can figure out, oh, I don't have anyone giving me spiritual guidance or I don't have any real friends or I, I don't have a mentor or I need spiritual direction or I need counsel. And even the great thing is this. You don't have to just rely upon me for all those things. That's why you have the fellowship of believers. That way it doesn't rest on one person. It doesn't rest on somebody with a title. It rests on the family of God. And that is what fellowship is all about. Let us pray together. Father, we come to you today and I thank you for your loving kindness I thank you, God, that your word is true. I thank you for everyone who maybe even feels in this moment that feel like I've been stepping on their toes or you've been stepping on their toes. God, I thank you that, that your word is true in Romans 8, 1, and it says there's, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So even if they, they feel like, wow, I've been doing it wrong or I've thought wrong, God, you allow U-turns. You allow repentance. It's, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance and it's your kindness in this, in this moment that you're wanting us to return back to you. And God, maybe there's an act of repentance that needs to be had in this room with, with a Christian. They've just, they've bought the lie that politics is the way to go and their political affiliation and maybe they've been doing things wrong and maybe what they, their lead for every relationship is just patriotism or nationalism or their political stance or, or a certain political figure, God. And maybe that's what, 
Everybody thinks about them. And God, you allow U-turns. You allow them to repent. Your kindness does lead us to repentance. And now in the midst of that, God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's such victory to be had. And God, also, I know that for some people in here, they don't have a walk with you at all. And God, even in the midst of that, there's, there's maybe turmoil in their spirit right now and they're struggling. And maybe they've, they've heard the gospel over and over and over and they know the facts, but they've never put their faith in the finished work of the cross. And they've never asked Jesus to be the guide of their life, to be their Lord and their Savior. Father, I pray that you just give them a boldness and a courage. Your spirit would, would lighten them up. They, they, they would have eyes to see and a willingness to, to come and talk to me or, or somebody else um, after the service so that they can be one with you by the power of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you put us in families. God, your word in Psalm 68, 6 says that you set the lonely in families, and we've all been lonely, and we're here together now enjoying the fellowship of believers. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.